Ameda Ena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. A data-driven approach is becoming more common across companies from different sectors. These companies have people that are focused on getting insights from data, such as data analysts and data scientists. Hannah Landris, data scientist at UserMind, explains the difference between data analyst and data scientist. Hannah has experience in both these roles. She explained the types of problems that she explored as a data analyst and as a data scientist. We talked about the mathematical concepts present in this area and the workflow and technologies she uses. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers to discuss, debate, and talk about compensation, workplace harassment, corporate policies, and more. I've used it for over a year and find it very helpful. There are 50,000 companies active on Blind. Check if yours is there and connect with other employees. Blind is available for iOS, Android, and online at teamblind.com. Go to teamblind.com to download the app. Thank you. Hannah Landris, data scientist at UserMind, a startup in Seattle, is joining us today. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you. You studied mathematics in college and also in graduate school. So I'm really curious about this. What areas of mathematics were you exploring back then? Yeah, so uh, my master's project was focused on uh, analytic number theory, which is uh, kind of an exploration of prime numbers, and in particular, if you kind of redefine your distance metric um, in terms of primes, you know, how does the world look? So it's a, it was a very theoretical side of math and didn't necessarily have a huge applications in the world at large, but I found it super interesting. And so that's what I decided to focus on. What's special about prime numbers in terms of this project? Yeah, so the thing about... So this is piatic analysis is kind of like the subgroup. And you say that two numbers are close together if their difference is highly divisible by a prime. So if you're in the five-attic space where five is your prime number, two is closer to seven than it is to three because seven subtract two is divisible by five once, whereas three subtract two is not divisible by five. So you have this weird understanding of a distance metric. And then, you know, a lot of the things that you do in the real world, you can start like with the Euclidean distance, you can start to apply this other metric to the same types of problems and the world looks very, very different. So it's, it's just kind of an unusual way to look at a distance metric that's just kind of super fascinating. So, yeah. And just to clarify, a prime number is a number that can only be divided by itself and the number one, right? Yes, that's a prime number. The reason that I asked, you know, specifically why you were doing work with prime numbers, because I know they use them a lot in cryptography and they're, they enable certain things in that area. Yeah, there's a lot of applications of number theory in uh, cryptography. Yeah, that's a very rich space. After you graduated from your master's in mathematics, Your first job out of school was as a data analyst at BitTitan. This is a company that helps organizations drive cloud adoption. When you joined as a data analyst, can you explain what sort of things 
you were looking at? Yeah, so I kind of joined as a data analyst that had more of a skew towards like business analysts. So I was doing a lot of, you know, helping their sales team understand, uh, you know, how well they were selling things in different parts of the country and, you know, which products were landing and which products weren't landing, uh, kind of a lot of those like classic business problems. And then, you know, during my time there, that the scope of my role kind of expanded and I started to work a lot more on like product data. So you get data back from you know your online SaaS product and you want to understand you know how people are using your product. And then, you know, kind of my role expanded from there where I started to, you know, try to use more advanced techniques as well. And and that's how I started being interested in data science was, you know, doing these more advanced like machine learning prediction projects and you know, really wanted to grow into that space. Can you talk about the workflow as a data analyst when you're just onboarding to a new project? Yeah, so you frequently meet with the business people that you would like to, that would like some data work, and they, you know, tell you the things that they want you to help them solve, the questions that they have, the things they want to know, the gaps that they have, and you kind of want to listen to what you know what their business problems are, and and sometimes you'll you'll have people asking for specific charts, but it's helpful to back up and really get to what business problems they're trying to solve because you know frequently you might have a different perspective that might solve their problem better than you know one particular graph they're asking for. So it's very important to have a close connection with the you know the business people that you're working with. So you mentioned this listening step is very important, listening to the business people that have the questions. After this, do you have to go on and try to gather that data or is that already a lot of data and then you're just trying to figure out which chunks of data would be useful to answer a certain question? Yeah, so it depends some on the project. You know, frequently you have, you know, your invoicing data or your purchasing data is fairly well understood. So maybe you just have to throw a different spin on that data. Uh, you might also need to expand the set of data that you have. So perhaps they, you know, they want to bring in, you know, some demographic data from the outside world that you don't necessarily have, you know, already. And so you might have to go source some new data. So it kind of depends on the problem. And, you know, the more you work with an organization, the more you understand the data that they have, uh, the problems that are getting asked. And so you kind of figure out, you know, repeatable processes to deliver, you know, these reports and this, these values to people. But it always, always kind of depends on the project. So we mentioned listening to business people, looking at the data and potentially also gathering more data. What comes next? Yeah, then you would want to, you know, you'll generally come up with reports, uh, visualizations that you are aiming to answer the questions, whether they're like one-time reports or reports that are going to, you know, continuously update as you get new data. And you want to present these to the, the people that were the business people that requested it. You want to see if these visualizations are answering the questions that they want or monitoring the things that they want to. And if they're able to action off of the visualizations and the, the data that you've given them, because really that's the ultimate goal is you want to be able to drive, you know, better actions for the business through the data that you give people. So, you know, you present it to them, you know, as with most things, you, you'll probably have to go and edit them again, change things up a little bit. Um, but it becomes kind of an iterative process at that point where you say, this is what I think will help you guys. Does this help? OK, I need to you know spin it this way or, you know, visualize it a little bit differently. And so it's kind of this like collaborative back and forth of getting, you know, a final product that really helps them drive value for you know whatever um, problem they're trying to solve. 
What were some of the mathematical concepts that you used when you were a data analyst? Yeah, so you you know you end up with a lot of the uh, you know some of the statistical functions where you might want to look at averages and medians and standard deviation and kind of the difference between like your average versus your median is your average is, is can be heavily skewed by outliers. So you want to be careful with that. Of like if you have a couple of really high values, it might make your average look, you know, kind of inflate your average, whereas the median is just telling you your middle value. And so sometimes that's easier to, you know, that can sometimes be more true uh, to the values. And so you want to show people things that are truthful and, you know, speak to the data, but also are easily, to, you know, easily able to interpret. And so you kind of have to, you know, toe the line between those types of things. And, you know, you can show distributions as well if you have a, an audience that, is comfortable with that. Can you give an example of the impact of an outlier? Like just translating this to a specific problem, maybe we're looking at income of people or something like that. Yeah. So for like the income example, you know, you might be doing, let's say you're doing per per zip code, what is the average income? Well, you might have a zip code that has a ton of people that are in a very low income bracket that maybe, you know, make, I don't want to, I feel weird throwing out a number here, but, you know, make a low amount of money. And then you have a couple of people in that income bracket that make it, or not in that income bracket, in that uh, zip code that make a high amount of money. And so if you take the average, it's going to kind of be between those two numbers. Whereas like if you, it might only be like two or three people that are making millions of dollars. And so it might kind of skew your numbers and make that look like a richer zip code. And so that can, you know, cause issues because it's not a true representation of, you know, of the population. Exactly. So, for example, me and the region that I live, live at, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos live nearby and they're, they're probably the outliers here. Yeah. yeah. Do data analysts do programming as part of their workflow also? I think it, you know, it kind of depends per company what a business analyst does. I know you know, business analysts that are using Python or SAS um, as a part of their, their role. But I know other business analysts who are maybe using, you know, existing like data analyst tools, either within the, the data platform that they have. So maybe they're in like a CRM system and they're, they're using the built-in data tools, or maybe they're using something like Tableau. Um, so it kind of is this, this gamut of things. Um, SQL is also, you know, fairly helpful. So it really depends on, you know, the organization, where their data is stored, how you can access the data, and then, you know, the types of things that you need to do. But a data analyst compared to a data scientist tends to use, you know, has less programming um, and, you know, maybe has more SQL, more like data visualizations like Tableau or Power BI compared to like a data scientist that would have more programming like Python or R. You currently work at UserMind, a startup in Seattle, and you work here as a data scientist. Can you first explain a little bit about what UserMind is working on? Yeah, so UserMind is a customer engagement hub. So they, they bring together customer data from a lot of different sources and they try and optimize their customer's journey. So it's a B2B company and we take data from other companies' customers and try and make their customers more successful. And this is kind of across a wide vertical of industries. You know, you just kind of need to have an idea of a customer and, you know, interactions and touch points with that customer. So it's essentially building tools and software to manage and maybe even automate these customer interactions? 
Yes. And so, you know, if you ever had, you know, a customer interaction where you, you don't feel like it's the, the best customer interaction before, you feel like you just submitted a support ticket. So why, you know, are you talking to the salesperson that's telling you something else? Instead, you should unify that, that data and the, the experience that you should give to your customer should be a good one that takes all those data points in mind and then makes a good, you know, journey and potentially an automated journey through, you know, marketing campaigns or, you know, pop-ups on your website that help people out. And like I mentioned earlier, your role here is data scientist. And prior to that, you were a data analyst. What is the difference between these two? Yeah. So I think of a, a data scientist as kind of this, uh, you know, renaissance man of, uh, of a profession where you kind of have to have a little bit of every tool. You have to, you know, you still have to be able to do the data analysis because you have to understand the data that you're being given. You frequently, especially in a startup, have to do a lot of the data engineering, which is getting the data into the form that you need it to be to do analysis or to do predictions. Then you also need to have you know, uh, machine learning skills in order to do predictions or, you know, other mathematical techniques, including, you know, statistics to kind of understand correlation and causation and things like that. And then you're also kind of frequently have to do a lot of programming to bring all those things together. So it's, it's kind of this wide range of skills that you need to solve whatever data problems at hand. And data, you know, data analysis just is, you know, a, a small subset of those things. So data scientist encompasses some aspects of data analyst. Yeah, a data scientist, you know, needs the, some of the skills that a data analyst has. And, and sometimes data analysts has, you know, might have a little bit more of the business knowledge, uh, kind of depending on the organization. What are some examples of the goals of a data science engineer? So, you know, frequently you're trying to predict something and you might be trying to predict it um, at scale. So for user mind, we tend to like, for your customers, you, you have frequently you have a positive outcome that you want them to do, whether it's, you know, renewing a subscription that they have through you, uh, you know, staying a customer, you don't want them to churn. So you're trying to, you know, predict this outcome and, you know, encourage people along the outcome. So when the first step is, is predicting that outcome, like, will they churn? Will they, you know, really renew? And then if they are unlikely to do the thing that you want, you might want to, you know, apply some, you might want to encourage them to do the thing that you want by, you know, giving the, like performing actions with them that, that leads to that, that desired outcome. So what you're talking about here is in the context of UserMind, which is this company working in the customer interaction space. And if I understand correctly, what you're describing is as a data scientist, some of the things and the goals for you are to predict if the customer is going to renew maybe a subscription or something like this? Yeah, that's one example of a project is trying to predict customers that will renew a subscription. Are there other examples that you can talk about? It doesn't have to be in the context of user mind, just to give a bit of context of the type of things you can predict. Yeah. So, you know, there's actually, I guess this is still like a user mind uh, topic, but frequently you might want to do like a recommendation system. So, you know, perhaps you have a, a set of blog articles 
and you know you want people to engage with your blog content or you know your video content your you know your email content whatever content you have and you want to recommend the next blog article that they should read and and you want to do that based on the things that they have read the things that people like them have read and like you know kind of pick you know hand pick an article that they're going to enjoy that they're going to want to read and that's going to you know provide them value what are some of the things that you consider to evaluate how good your recommendation system is doing, for example? Do you gather metrics that can help you get insights about it? Yeah, so you frequently want, whenever you're testing you know, a system like this, you, you tend to want to have, uh, you want to do like A-B testing where you have a population that you don't do recommendations to, and then you have a population that you do give recommendations to, and you want to see, you know, kind of the lift between these two populations. When I give a population, you know, personalized recommendations, do they truly read more articles than the population that I didn't give recommendations to? And so you want to, you know, see if you have an increase in the articles read, and then, you know, as well, if you're trying to drive other metrics with them, you know, like maybe the time on the website or the time that they, the number of times that they visit the website per week, you want to kind of monitor those other metrics that are like the business goals that you're trying to drive in and compare them to the group that didn't have the recommendations. So you're describing two populations, ones that has the recommendation system and the other one that doesn't. How do you come up with that split of population? So ideally, in order for, you know, your test to be accurate, you want you know, you want to try and get a truly random split of your data. So you don't want to do something like in week A, like week one, I gave everyone recommendations. And then in week two, I gave no one recommendations because there might be something, you know, that happened in week one versus week two that's skewing your results. So you don't want to do something time-based like that because maybe in week one, it was, uh, you know, super rainy. And so everyone was staying inside and reading articles in week two, it was sunny outside. So everyone went out inside and played. If that was the case, you wouldn't be able to say that your recommendations truly made them read more articles. You would only be able, you know, it might've been because of the rain. So you want to do a random sampling of your population. Um, You know, this is over things like time, like I described, but also like demographics. So you don't want to, you know, just divide them up by state or by gender or by age. Ideally, what you want is you want you know, the same distributions in both of your data sets. And a distribution is like you want 50-50 women in your first in your group A, 50-50 men, women in group B as well. You don't, you know, want those to be unequal because that would throw bias into your results. Do you have to run the experiment more than once, for example, to avoid things like, oh, this week is a holiday and things like that? Or or does this experiment can last I don't know, a couple of months or... Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on like kind of the confidence that you want to have. And and frequently you, what you want to do is, is you're only going to test on a, a like maybe 10% of your population of like, you know, 10% of your user base because you don't, you want to make sure that whatever you built is performing well before you kind of unleash it on your entire user base. So, you know, how long you choose to test it you know, depends on how confident you want to be in your results. And so there's some rules about about how to, you know, how long you need to do this for. 
but it's also, you know, kind of dependent on, you know, who the customer is and how risk averse they are or aren't. And so, you know, you want to get to a certain confidence level and that confidence level kind of depends on, on the, the customer. I want to switch gears now and talk about the startup scene in Seattle. User Mine is a startup here. Can you talk a bit about what the startup scene is like in Seattle? Yeah, so Seattle has a fairly robust startup scene. You know, there's a lot of established tech here with Microsoft and Facebook and Google. And so startups are really able to kind of draw tech talent and really kind of grow here. You know, it's not, not necessarily big as San Francisco, but it, it definitely is growing. And I kind of decided to move to Seattle because I've always lived in the Pacific Northwest. And I thought, you know, math, tech, startup, like that seems to all work together. So I moved to Seattle and I started, you know, just trying to get involved in the startup scene there. The summer that I was here, they did this like startup week where a bunch of different startups had open houses where you could come, you could meet the the team there and you could learn about what they were doing. And so that was kind of my, my first you know, introduction to startups. You know, I, I came from a small Oregon town and they didn't, they don't have startups there. Uh, so it was kind of a new scene for me. And it's basically, you know, these companies that are, you know, trying to make some vision happen. And there's a lot of, you know, drive to, to add value or to, to change the way that we interact with the world. And so, you know, I find it an, an interesting work environment and theme. What did you say the event was where you first got exposure to this? I believe it's Seattle Startup Week. Mm-hmm. And what were some other factors you consider before joining a startup when just you're starting to decide where you're going to work on. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of decided that I wanted to move out of academia and I wanted to move into industry. You know, technology was very interesting space to work in and there was like a lot of room for math. But then, you know, the decision between like a startup and a larger company is, you know, startups, you get a lot of hands-on experience and a lot of exposure to a ton of different things. Um, you know, you know, as a data scientist at UserMind, I find myself wearing many different hats, whether it's doing machine learning, um, you know, doing machine learning engineer, doing data analysis, being a PM, uh, you know, there's a large variety of things that, that I do every single day. And so I'm always learning new things and, you know, providing value. Yes. And also, I guess, like you mentioned earlier, you can even get closer to hearing the questions that the business people have versus if you're in a bigger company, that, that's usually another layer, another person's job to be the connection between the data scientist and the business people who have the questions that they're trying to answer, right? Yeah, no, I definitely work, you know, hands-on with a lot of business people. Um, and, you know, that's like kind of across levels where, you know, I'm working with, you know, salespeople and understanding their problems. I'm working with, you know, the VP and execs. So, you know, it's kind of getting to see, you know, different perspectives of people that might be more senior than me. And like, what do they care about? What do they think about? And that kind of influences me in how I should be thinking about the business and how I should be thinking about adding value. So yeah, I think it's very interesting to be able to talk to, you know, a large range of people within the company. You're part of the Puget Sound Programming Python group. What are the activities that you have been involved with in this group? Yeah, so Puget Sound Python programmers, they also call themselves Puppy, if anyone recognizes that. And so what my main involvement with them right now is I'm an organizer for 
a subgroup called Atom, which is Advanced Topics on Machine Learning. And what this group does is that they meet once a month and someone volunteers to lead a discussion and they bring a paper that's going to kind of lead, that's going to kind of focus the discussion on a machine learning topic. And everyone reads the paper before the event. And then we discuss the paper. You know, there's a certain amount where oftentimes you're, you're working to understand the paper because reading, you know, a machine learning paper can sometimes be a challenge. And so it's helpful to be able to like, okay, this sentence right, or this paragraph right here, I, I didn't get this. And then, you know, some of our rooms are like, oh, I have, you know, 10 years of experience with this. This is how I would, you know, this would help you better understand that paragraph, or this is how I would describe it better. Here's an answer to your question. So there's a lot of that where you can like learn from other people. And then there's even, you know, discussions about what techniques are best and, you know, what things you need to be aware of when you're, you know, doing these applications. So, I think it's a a very interesting environment and an interesting meetup because it's not just someone talking at you, but it's you're having a discussion with other people within your community, which I like a lot. And then the Puget Sound Python programmers have other meetups as a part of them. And they do, you know, they do have like monthly meetups that I participate in as well, where it's it is more of a presentation style. But they're they're very always very interesting and insightful as well. And you mentioned that in this group, when there are discussions about a topic in machine learning, that there's people with more years of experience in the field? Is that what you mentioned? Yeah. You know, the people that come to Adam is a wide variety of people. We meet at Galvanized right now. And so there's a lot of people that, you know, are coming straight out of um, a boot camp that, you know, have, you know, some knowledge from the boot camp, but don't have a ton of experience. And those people are, you know, We have those people all the way up to people that, you know, have been doing like robotics for 20 years. I, I, I'm not 100% sure on that one, but people that have been, you know, involved in, you know, some sort of machine learning AI technology for a lot of years. And so you get a lot of different perspectives of people and they come from a lot of different companies, some larger companies, some smaller companies. And so you get to uh, learn a lot from the experiences of the people in the group. Are these events free? Yes, they are free. They are on meetup.com. If you type meetup.com, Puget Sound, Python programmers, Adam, that should get you there on the internet. Yes, I'll include that in the user notes. And I just want to highlight this to the listeners that don't live in the Puget Sound. There's likely something similar in your region. And if not, I would recommend to start one because like you're saying, Hannah, there's a lot of benefit in getting perspective from different people, whether it's they're coming from a boot camp or they've been in the industry for 20 years. I think it's very valuable to interact with more people. Yeah, definitely. There's, um, I know for sure that there's the like uh, Python user groups all over the country. And as well, there is, so Puget Sound Python Programmers has a Slack channel. And I don't think we require you to be in the Seattle area. I know there's some people from Portland and other locations on there, but the Slack channel is also, you know, a really good resource because there's things like a, there's Q&A on there, you know, there's a machine learning channel. And so, you know, you're able to kind of connect with people online as well, which is, you know, good and interesting, kind of builds your relationships with people. Well, Hannah, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thank you, Edna. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com 
to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out.